0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, could Traffic Enforcement Unit benefit Hamilton, and should City Council wait before approving photo radar? We'll talk with 4-5 Councillor Chad Collins. Contract disputes still going on across the province of Ontario with teachers' unions calling for rotating strikes, work to rule, and a whole lot more. Is this the light at the end of the tunnel, or not? And over the weekend, Iran admitted to shooting down that plane, killing 57 Canadians. We'll find out where this leaves things amid the tensions with that country. The Bill Kelly Podcast Starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Does the city of Hamilton need a traffic enforcement unit that citywide? Now this is one issue that's going to be dealt with by Hamilton City Council. Uh, And the other is uh, a report that's coming forward about red light cameras, which is something that was uh, talked about at considerable length in uh, the last couple of months. And it looks like it's not going to happen anytime soon anyway. Counselor Chad Collins, a counselor for Ward 5, and also a member of the Police Services Board, in fact, uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on that. Morning, Chad. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill. Yourself? Yeah, listen, I saw this story, and and obviously this is uh, a dedicated citywide traffic enforcement unit uh, Mm -hmm. that's going to be discussed. Uh, I'm not so sure. I haven't seen any numbers here about how much this is going to cost, but uh, uh, aren't aren't we already paying for this with, with our police services?
1: We are, and um, so we do, have, we do have traffic enforcement, obviously, across the city and have historically for as long as probably the police have been around. And um, so w- we have had recent successes, as you know, as it relates to enforcement on the Red Hill Valley Parkway. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was a council initiative, um, I believe it was a motion through Councillor Maroul and I originally, and, and that was in response in, in terms of trying to make Red Hill safer. Obviously, we know we have a speeding problem on that road. And uh, traffic and uh, police enforcement sorry, on, on the road for the last year has proven to be a very successful initiative. We have um, obviously reduced the number of um, of speeders on the road. And the fines from those penalties and the aggressive driving have uh, paid for the police time to, to monitor it. So it has been successful pilot, and police will be recommending, Police Services Board will be recommending uh, through its own budget and then on to City Council uh, in just a few months that um, we have a citywide uh, traffic enforcement um, program, so beyond Red Hill. And I think it's um, one of the recommendations that are included in today's Public Works Committee meeting. So um, it, it is something that's already been discussed by police. In fact, we had our, fir- our, our second or third budget meeting last week, um, that recommendation will go on to Hamilton Police Services Board, and then on to City Council as part of its um, as as part of its budget process. And I can say that from a constituency perspective, and uh, I'm certainly not alone on this. And I've heard my colleagues, especially in some of the rural areas, talk about the need for increased police enforcement and, tra- and traffic safety. There is a a growing need and a growing call from constituents for um, for additional police resources as it relates to reducing speed on residential neighborhoods and uh, getting at some of the aggressive driving that we're seeing across the city it's not just a red hill valley parkway issue Um, it is something that plagues almost every single residential area in the city and um it seems to be getting worse the trends and at least i know the calls to my office from residential areas are slowly increasing over time and um and without having photo radar as as was noted in the other report that we'll deal with today at public works you know the option of having police certainly move around the city and have dedicated traffic enforcement officers responding to those calls for service, I think is something that uh, is proactive in nature, first and foremost. And I think second, response to the needs of constituents who are calling. Uh, for that service,
0: now I, I've been a strong advocate for the enforcement on the on the red hill, and I'm glad to see that it, it makes us safer when we're going down that road. And so this is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But my understanding, Chad, is those were paid duty officers. They, in other words, they would do, that was technically their day off, but they're working and getting paid for it.
1: Yes, correct. And so the pilot program was one where we offered it to uh, to the officers in the service, and um, and we had a, a very high take up rate. And so I, I believe that uh, well over ninety percent of the time we were meeting. The uh, shift requirements, uh, as you just mentioned, Bill, and the fines, uh, we've tracked those fines through that process, have more than paid for it. And then certainly it's it's not about the resources, although it is a benefit, certainly when some of these pilot programs pay for themselves, but there was certainly a net financial gain uh, to the city as it relates to that, that service. And so we're, we're looking to expand that, uh, again, responding not just to, to the needs of um of councillors and the mayor who call in from time to time asking for enforcement in certain residential neighbourhoods, we'll be looking at extending that to all areas of the city and in primary response to residents who are calling to complain about, and there's no shortage of examples to give across the city, aggressive driving and speeding traffic.
0: Uh, the statistic I saw on this this morning indicated that about half of the collisions that occur in the city are because of excessive speed.
1: Correct, that's correct. And so we're, we, you know, we're seeing pretty high stats on Red Hill related to that, and and certainly those numbers extend into residential neighborhoods across the city. And so, the the police recommendation, and it's it's kind of we're we're a little bit ahead of today's recommendation from city's uh, public works department. Um, the police will be recommending through 2020 and 2021 uh, eight additional officers for traffic enforcement, four in 2020 and four in 2021. Of course, that's an enhancement. Um, to, to our budget, and so it certainly needs to be uh, approved first and foremost by Hamilton Police Service Board, and our, our members will see that later this month, and then it will be on to City Council for approval there as well. Uh,
0: and I, I know there's always a pushback every time the police service budget comes up, and especially when they talk about adding new officers. Some of your council mm-hmm. colleagues seem to bristle at that very idea, but the, the, the stats here, Chad, seem to indicate that this is, this is going from a problem to a crisis situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's something, as I mentioned, uh, you know, I know calls to my own uh, office are increasing on a weekly and monthly basis as it relates to calls for police enforcement. And, and, you know, we're seeing instances, we had a crackdown last year on Queenston Road uh, for aggressive driving and stunt driving in that area. Police did a great job in terms of cracking down on that. And I know those resources have been Uh, allocated to other areas of the city as well, in the core of the city, and then even in some of our suburban areas as it relates to trying to get some some of these hot hot spots. And so I think Chief Gert and uh, our Deputy Chiefs Bergen and Diodati recognize that there is a need from a service perspective uh, for the additional enforcement, and and they're responding quite clearly to calls from the community. I mean, people aren't sitting in their office dreaming these things up. There's clearly, as you just noted, Bill, there are 50% of all collisions in the city uh, can be attributed to aggressive driving and speeding, and so when, when we have a a Vision Zero document and road safety plan that says we need to reduce those numbers, um, you know Hamilton Police Service staff are responding, and the board is will respond. I'm confident of that, and I think my colleagues, uh, when they when they see the enhancement in front of them, will probably see fit to support it as well, although. You know, time will tell.
0: All right, let's 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 dovetail and, and bring that other issue that you mentioned, uh, that, that being red light cameras into this conversation, mm-hmm. because obviously it has to be part of this conversation. How helpful yeah. would those cameras be to try to alleviate the concerns that you've just expressed?
1: Well, anytime you introduce automation, you you, know, you start to gravitate, away, you, you rely less on uh, paid labor that we have, as I just mentioned, in, in terms of allowing you to reach more areas of the city at, at a lower cost. Um, the issue that we'll have on today is in response to the province, in 2017 passed the Safer School Zones Act, which allows municipalities to implement a type of photo radar in school zones and uh, community safety zones where the roads have a, a, a uh, speed limit of less than 80 kilometres. So unfortunately, it doesn't it wouldn't apply to the Red Hill Valley Parkway, which is the motion that Councillor Marula had many years ago in terms of asking the province to implement it there but it would be allowed around uh, elementary schools, high schools, and other learning institutions in the city where we see fit. Um, it's early days for photo radar. As I mentioned, the province just passed the legislation. A uh, staff's report today suggests that it is not a cost recovery initiative. The cost of the equipment, the cost of processing, there's a huge backlog in the courts right now as it relates to POA offenses, and there'd be the requirement, I believe it said, I don't have it in front of me, Bill, but I think there was the requirement for 10 or 11 additional staff um, as it relates to processing the fines, moving the equipment, uh, because uh, they are mobile, and um, and then processing all of the uh, infractions that flow through. So it, it, it's, very, uh, it's a costly initiative. Again, it's early days, and the suggestion from city staff, and I still have a number of questions that I will be asking this afternoon, but the recommendation from city staff is that we um, allow a couple of other municipalities to move forward on it um, the province will be taking undertaking a 180 day review after it's um, it's been rolled out um, in in certain areas across the province, and so wait for those um, wait for the early data to come back and determine whether or not it's an initiative that is warranted hearing in Hamilton or um, or not, and um, and so I. I I see it as the future. I mean, it's just a matter of time before we start to see, not just in school safety zones, but uh, in community uh, zones. I think it's something that we'll see commonplace across the municipality, not just here in Hamilton, but across North America. That's in addition to, as you know, Bill, and you've covered this extensively, the red light cameras that we've already had in place for a number of years. All of the fines from those red light cameras pay for traffic safety initiatives in the city. And so when residents see a new pedestrian crossing go up, Um, or if they see uh, speed humps on a street, all of those initiatives have been paid through the Red Light Camera Reserve. And so, again, we're seeing technology being utilized to assist in trying to reduce um, aggressive driving and speeding and other types of um, vehicle infractions. And to date, you know, I think we can say that it's been very successful here locally and elsewhere. And so with this one, it, it looks like the cost, at least in the early days, are quite high. And uh, I think there'll be a good discussion this afternoon as it relates to when Hamilton should dip its toe in the water and, and participate in, in this new provincial program.
0: There, somebody has done an estimate someplace, and I'm sure you're going to talk about this at the meeting later on today, uh, about where you're going to break even and actually start to show profit. I understand that the $2.45 million that's mentioned in this report is the initial capital cost and, and staffing and, and awareness and all this sort of stuff that goes with all of these programs. And that's yep. a significant cost, to be sure. But, I mean,, uh, you don't have to pay salary and benefits to a camera. Uh, and at some mm-hmm. point the 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 revenue that's going to be generated is going to offset some of those costs. and And uh, that that's got to be part of this this discussion, I would think.
1: it will. And it, you know, if I look back to the red light cameras, those were the same concerns and questions that we had at that time. and uh, and thankfully, and I mean, again, this isn't all about the revenues. This is really about trying to change uh, driver behavior uh, and and but certainly revenues and the cost have to be part of the discussion. And, um, and so I, yeah, I agree, Bill, in, in terms of it's, it's just a matter of time. We, we know that there are oftentimes with these new programs, there are large uh, capital costs associated with it. You know, we're going to have the same discussion as it relates to uh, school bus enforcement cameras. I think that's a no brainer in terms of uh, installing cameras on, on school buses to monitor drivers who ignore those flashing red lights and the signs that uh, come out of the bus. Um, and you know, and I'm, I'm sure over the next uh, 5 to 10 years, future councils and future provincial governments will see other technology that um, that will be of some assistance in trying to improve uh, pedestrian and cyclist safety on our roads, and, and we'll be contemplating those initiatives as that technology rolls out.
0: Chad, where are we going on this? I mean, a couple of your council colleagues have already suggested that part of this solution uh, and these are two parts to the solution. Obviously, there's mm-hmm. no one silver bullet here. Uh, right. Is also speed reduction on city streets, and and there, I know Council Councilor has done that on Kenilworth Avenue downtown. Yeah, uh, it's down to 40 kilometers right now, and they're suggesting that all city streets, uh, save four major arteries, should be reduced. Uh, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, we've already p- we've passed that, and so that is that will be in- implemented. We've already started the implementation in 2019. I think every ward had two or three neighborhoods to start
0: at least. Through-
1: yeah, through 2020 and into 2021, we will complete the rest of the city. And so that that is part of the other initiatives that I talked about earlier, Bill. It's citywide 40-kilometer uh, speed limit, um, traffic-calming initiatives like pedestrian crossings, speed humps. You've seen those electronic speed boards that we're putting up across the city that monitor um, speed of, of motorists. And we, we use those statistics, and they're all available online on the city's website to uh to determine what streets need enforcement and then of course red light cameras as we've discussed and so these are all tools that the city's using as part of its road safety program and plan that we have from 2019 to 2025. It's a multi-year uh, plan. I think on average we're spending and you mentioned cost earlier Bill we're spending between two and three million dollars a year now and again these these funds are coming from the red light camera reserve we're spending that on, on the initiatives like speed boards, like the pedestrian crossings, the speed humps and other things to try to calm traffic. And these enforcement tools that are different and above and beyond those initiatives, I think, help us supplement for those people who are ignoring those, those uh, initiatives and traffic calming devices that we're putting in place and who just want to roll through those stop signs or blow through a stop sign for those people who want to speed on residential streets. We need things like the red light cameras and we need traffic enforcement from Hamilton Police Service on a regular basis in order to supplement those other technological um, advancements that we've implemented over the last number of years.
0: Well, that's real one, isn't it? I mean, for the number of years you've been on council and, of course, on the police services board, too, you can pass all the legislation you want, but if you don't Mm -hmm. have enforcement, it's not going to do anybody any good.
1: Yeah, it's really hard to believe It's some of the things that we all see on on city streets uh, on a daily basis, and I was so pleased to see just taking my kids to school this morning, I noticed uh, enforcement on uh, Nash Road and someone just flying down the road and the police were there with radar enforcement and uh, pulled that individual over. And so those are the types of things that, you know, I, I like to see as someone who obviously wants to see safer streets in the area I represent, but as a parent and with kids going to and from school or wherever they're traveling in the city, um, you know, you, you you want to see that enforcement there and you want to make sure that we're using all the tools available to us to to make our streets a lot safer.
0: It's all about public safety. We'll see how your council colleagues respond to this later on. Chad, as always, thanks for the time today. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, with contract disputes still ongoing, uh, work to rule and rotating strikes are going to be coming through Hamilton Schools this week. This is going right across the province, of course. Uh, it's the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, it's the Ontario Elementary Schools, it's the Catholic boards, it's the French boards, all of them without contracts, all of them very frustrated with the uh, the, the way that things are progressing with uh, the ministry and with the government right now. Uh, the OSSTF will be launching administrative job action today, uh, while the ETFO begins uh, not supervising extracurricular activities and participating in field trips, things of that nature. So where is this all leading? Well, let's uh, bring Harvey Bischoff into the conversation. Harvey, of course, is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Harvey. How are you today?
2: Good morning, Bill. Doing okay, thanks.
0: Well, anybody that thought this was going to get resolved over the holidays, I guess, was uh, was dreaming it was just pie-in-the-sky ideas. I, I don't know that we're any further ahead here, Harvey.
2: Uh, we, no, we haven't, been, uh, we haven't been moving at all. In fact, since uh, December 16th, the last time we met, uh, when the uh, mediator... Um, uh, suggested that talks end because there was no progress being made. Um, we remain in her hands and we're awaiting uh, her invitation to return to the table.
0: Uh, by the way, I want to get your reaction to this because I know that uh, the class sizes are certainly one of the key considerations that you're concerned about. But one of the others that you and I have talked about extensively, one of these government proposals, uh, was this e-learning, the mandatory e-learning. Now, uh, the Toronto Star, uh, Robert Benzie and the Toronto Star is reporting today uh, that uh, they got their hands on a confidential document that said first of all the government uh, was going to back off on that and simply make them as uh, as as optional programs as they have been in the past uh, now we're finding out that at least one uh, individual is reporting that uh, not only are they going to be mandatory but they're actually they're, I, I guess they're going to have to pay for them this is going to be a revenue generator what what's your reaction to this
2: so the 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 revenue generation part from my understanding and uh, reading those uh, reading the article is meant to, to sell the curriculum or to sell course access to other jurisdictions as opposed to selling it to Ontario students. Um, but it's still, you know, very much beside the point of quality of education. Why? Uh, I mean, I, I don't object if Ontario can sell its curriculum uh, and and uh, but but. Why does that lead to mandatory e-learning credits for Ontario students? And why does it learn, uh, lead specifically, as, as pointed out in, in, that, uh, in that media article, to a $55 million reduction in funding to Ontario school boards? Annually, And so while the minister has been claiming all along that this is not a fiscal exercise, it's clear once again that he hasn't been telling the truth. This is a fiscal exercise. There's no mention uh, in anything I've seen about improving quality of education for students through e-learning. They're just talking about using it as a revenue tool.
0: Well, the idea of monetizing education, I think, is going to make an awful lot of people uneasy. Uh, but it, it, you're right, it's, it's don't let the right hand see what the left hand is doing. I mean, first of all, they say we can sell this to other jurisdictions and make some money if it's a good program, but there's no guarantee that it is at this stage. But at the same time, they've reduced funding to the schools here in Ontario. So, I mean, they're taking away here and then trying to generate revenue for themselves with the other hand.
2: Absolutely, and and why you know why shouldn't the primary lookout of Ontario's education system be the quality of education that's being delivered to our students? And there's no evidence to demonstrate that e-learning provides that kind of quality of education. Um, You know, it has a it has a place, it has a value under certain circumstances, uh, but surely those circumstances are when students choose to take e-learning because of, of the environment that they're working in, or because of their own personal needs, or or abilities, it, forcing it on all kids. Um, you know, first of all, it's not two e-learning credits isn't done anywhere in the world. Uh, one e-learning credit is mandatory and you know, a model that this government points to, done in Alabama, 49 out of 50 in American education quality. Uh, and I just don't see why that would be the model we want to pursue in Ontario.
0: Well, that's one of the other elements to this, too. And I know that in the Toronto Star reporting, they're talking about monetizing this. Uh, but that's only if there's going to be an uptake on this. And from the description I've seen uh, about what they want to implement here, I'm not so sure too many other jurisdictions are going to be interested.
2: It, there's not, you know, I mean, there, there, there are very few uh, jurisdictions that require, uh, that have mandatory e-learning um, and, you know, in Ontario, you can see that the voluntary uptake is about 5% of students. And even at that, they don't succeed at the same rates they do in face-to-face classrooms. Um, so, so, but, it, you know, it, what, what it really absolutely clarifies is that the government is viewing education through a fiscal lens, um and even that it's a it's a warped lens at that because when you when you view education properly as an investment and not merely an expense you recognize the return on investment you get out of uh out of uh the publicly funded education system you recognize what happens to the economy when you turn out high quality graduates who are prepared to take on the jobs of the future uh when these guys see it just as a short-term expense and refuse to look at the other side of the ledger um, you know that their interest isn't in quality of education. It's providing tax cuts to their wealthy friends.
0: Well, and it's a dollars and cents exercise, as it was with health care, as it has been with the uh, the autism program and so many others. Uh, let, let, let's talk about the negotiations, if we could. And I know that you, you cannot start negotiating in public. You've mentioned that from the first time you and I talked, and I, I can respect that. Uh, it's got to be done behind closed doors, and obviously that stuff, whatever they agree upon, is finally going to be made public. But are are you seeing any 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 inclination right now that there the, there's there's a desire to make a deal here? Because I mean, the the wild card they've got, of course, is back to work legislation. If in fact there's ever an out and out strike, uh, where do you go, and what kind of a reaction are you expecting when when you do that? If you do that,
2: well, let's be clear: what back to work legislation would really do. So so while it might uh, you know it's another it's another short sighted uh, potentially short sighted approach to a long term problem. Because what back-to-work legislation would do would be take away our ability through the labor uh, process to resist the the, uh, the erosion of the quality of education in Ontario. So while may- people may see it as a solution because it, you know, puts people back to work in the long run, what it means is the government gets carte blanche to erode the quality of education, and that's the most significant outcome of of. Um, back-to-work legislation. You know, when it comes to bargaining in public, the process, I agree, you know, the actual talks and so forth have to be conducted confidentially. But from the outset, because this government publicized and politicized its positions going all the way back to March 15th of last year and began telling only half of the story in terms of its intention for the publicly funded education system, we said we are going to tell the whole story. So at bargainingforeducation.ca, there are all of our proposals, all of the government proposals. And what you'll see is the government's proposing cuts to the quality of education through reductions in education worker staffing, reductions in the number of teachers, mandatory e-learning, um, the elimination of all class size caps. And what we're proposing is status quo to the quality of education we were able to deliver just last year. And I think that's a it's an important perspective that people are reminded, that you know we are not in a dispute right now because we launched some kind of a sneak attack and made outrageous demands on this government and said we would you know take action if they weren't met on the contrary, it's the government that attacked the quality of education and we're simply defending what was in, you know, in existence just last year. And I, I can come up with no rationale for why the quality of education needs to be drastically eroded from one year to the next.
0: Well, that was the assertion of, of the then candidate and now premier, of course, was that the education system was broken. And, and I understand that there were some concerns about math tests in some of the junior grades, but did, does, that, does that simply uh, cast a pall on the whole system?
2: Yeah, and there's, there's no evidence to support it. It was only a few weeks ago that we once again got the, uh, the international uh, test results from the, the Program for International Student Assessment, uh, assessment uh, uh, a program of, of testing done internationally by uh, the OECD. And it showed once again that Canada and Ontario very specifically stack up extremely well against jurisdictions all around the world. Canada has one of the very best publicly funded education systems to be found anywhere on the globe. Uh, So the claim that it's broken is just a claim that that gives the the government uh, ideological cover to cut funds and try to privatize. Um, but it doesn't bear any uh, relation to the reality of Ontario's education system, which is that it's excellent and does a particularly good job of closing gaps between kids who are at opposite ends of the social economic spectrum, between new Canadians and kids whose families have been here for generations. That kind of equity of success, of achievement for students in Ontario's education system is, I think, a real highlight of our system and something that we ought not to be eroding
0: you know as we have this discussion and especially this element of it uh, i can't help but go back to about the mid 1990s and i know you went through this harvey and and that was uh, the embarrassingly uh, uh, you know leaked video upon then education minister john Snobelin, uh, that suggested that uh, the best way to go, move policy along was to create a crisis and then present yourself as the as the best reason, way to to try to solve this crisis Do you, is this deja vu all over again
2: deja vu all over again it, it couldn't be more clear so so what they say publicly and what they're doing behind closed doors are two completely different things they are creating a crisis um i'm you know it, there's every reason to believe that they hope that that crisis will will drive an appetite for privatizing education there's every every indication um in the government's intention to create some new entity to deliver e-learning, that e-learning is the thin edge of the wedge when it comes to privatization. That's the purpose of uh, forcing every student to take uh, to take two e-learning credits. is It makes it um, it makes it much more monetizable, as you've said. Now you've got something that you can you can sell to the highest bidder. You can privatize, begin privatizing the education system through that kind of approach, um, and that should. Uh, That should give people shutters, frankly, all across this province. You know, we have an excellent publicly funded education system and and the notion of trying to use it to drive profits um, is deeply
0: disturbing. Harvey, there was a court action against uh, another piece of government legislation, and that was the 1% cap on on any potential salary increases, which is uh, a stumbling block, and I would think in in your mind a major stumbling block in these negotiations. Uh, Are we waiting for that to get resolved before we're going to see any positive action here?
2: No, we can't wait for. I mean, certainly from our perspective, we can't wait for that. Those court actions take years, uh, and you know we have we have fairly recent evidence of that. We uh, launched a court challenge against Bill 115, um, you know, a number of years ago. It took a number of years to wind its way through the courts, uh, and we were ultimately successful in that challenge. And we believe we will be here, here as well. We believe that this government is improperly interfering in the bargaining process, violating my members. Uh, Constitutional rights to free collective bargaining, um, but just sitting back and waiting for the courts to rule, um, it, you know, wouldn't it, it, it? just it just takes too long, uh, and so we need to continue
0: to try to move things forward. But are you moving forward? I mean, this the, again, we've seen the, the word "stall." I, I hear frequently when we uh, have anybody who in the media who's describing uh, what they're telling us about how the negotiations are going. How, how does it change the dynamic here, Harvey? That that every uh, every System right now seems to be uh, in this. This is not just the secondary school teachers. This is the elementary school. It's the Catholic board and their high school and elementary schools. It's the French board as well. Uh, this is this is a massive undertaking, and it seems as if there's a great deal of discontent within the education system. Uh, is there a sense of unity among all these uh, these unions to suggest that look at this is this is where we have to make a stand?
2: Absolutely, there's a sense of unity, and we've all said the same thing. We see this as a as a critical juncture in in um, the, the future of Ontario's publicly funded education system. The attempt to erode the quality um, is, is serious and, Needs to be resisted Uh, but while the minister has been you know trying to make hay for weeks uh, pointing to us stf as somehow the villain in this while all we're doing is trying to sustain last year's quality of education um, now what's clear is with every uh, major uh, federation um, in the same position roughly is that there's a common denominator in all of this, and the common denominator is the Ford Education Agenda. They're the ones who are trying to undermine the quality of education. All the education affiliates are in the, in, you know, in the process of trying to uh, resist that erosion, and they can't point fingers at us anymore and claim that somehow we're the problem. The problem is an attack on the quality of education in this province.
0: Is there a tipping point that, that we're approaching here? I mean, the one-day strikes uh, continue. Uh, different, of uh, course, uh, situations and different associations here are doing different tactics. Some work to rule and things of this nature. Uh, but if it's not moving the yardsticks, uh, is, is there a point at which you have to say, okay, enough is enough. We have to go to the next step here?
2: Well, sure. I mean, we always we don't we don't uh, de- devise strategy in a, in a vacuum. We try to do what's best for moving things along, and that needs to be reevaluated constantly. But I will say, in terms of our approach, you know, from the outset, our our goal has been to take a measured approach um, and to try to balance the need to raise public attention to this cuts to the cuts that this government um, has already imposed and wants to deepen even further. Um, we're balancing that with the disruption that we know this causes for students and their families. And so, so our approach has been very measured. You know, when you look at the row trading strikes we've been engaged in, it involves roughly speaking a quarter of our members uh, each week. So it takes a month for it to come around to any particular student again. And at the same time, each week it has focused the public's attention on um, the direction this government is going with regard to uh, with regard to education. Um, and we know that overwhelmingly our uh, what we're saying is supported by the public and what the government is saying is not. So overwhelmingly people look to us to look out for students' best interests and believe the government isn't engaged in that. Um, and they believe that our proposals are are reasonable. and, you know, very frankly, we don't want to lose the public support on that. so we're being we're being, measured in our approach.
0: Well, I, I don't want to keep harkening back to the mid-1990s, but uh, just as a point of historical reference, I mean, that was when uh, there was a great deal of turmoil between uh, the, that government of the day and, of course, a, a number of different teachers' unions, and there was a lockout and there were strikes uh, in those situations. And and, and I can remember it on the picket lines, I mean, there were parents that were taunting the teachers and saying, go back in there and get to work, uh, because they were very frustrated with what was going on. I see some of the, uh, the 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 demonstrations that are going on in front of high schools uh, right through the province as we were off over the Christmas break. RV. uh it took a few days before Christmas and a few days after. Well, the the, uh, the walkouts were continuing. Uh, and I see parents bringing coffee and donuts and being very supportive and in some cases even walking with the teachers.
2: Uh, you know, I've been in education for 30 years. I've never seen an environment like this where where parents and and the public generally uh, are as supportive and, and as as clearly understanding of what's going on as they are uh, this time around. You know, the, the public um, is, is well-educated on the issues uh, and they are, they are um, you know, demonstrating which side they support in terms of uh, trying to support the future of quality education in Ontario. And, and you know, that's, that's something that we're mindful of, that, we're, uh, that we would be, you know, reluctant to, to squander. Uh, because this is very much, um, you know, uh, it, it, it is a collective bargaining issue, but it's very much a political issue as well. When you have a government deciding how to go forward in this province on education policy and the public that overwhelmingly doesn't want what they're selling um, and and, you know, what they're selling was something that they kept. They they, they never, never stated publicly during the campaign. They never said it was their intention to slash thousands of education workers and teachers out of the system. They never ran on a plan to, to uh, invoke mandatory e-learning. Um, you know, these were all things that they, that they uh, kept secret, much like they're keeping the uh, outcome of their own uh, parent consultations on education uh, secret, much like they tried to keep their e-learning plan secret. Uh, secret, but parents are on to them and just aren't interested in what they in what they have on offer.
0: Well, the next page of this, I guess, will be January 15th with the one-day uh, walkout, and we'll see if any impact that has on this. Harvey, we'll stay in touch. Thanks again for the time today, and thanks for the update. My pleasure. Thanks, Bill. Harvey Bishop, of course, President of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast
0: on 900
3: CHML.
0: Uh, ever since the shocking news about a plane that was shot down last week, uh, a Ukraine airline plane that was shot down, uh, as now we find out, uh, the admission by the Iranians that, yeah, they did shoot it down by accident, quote-unquote, air quotes there. Uh, but the, that admission, as uh, is, is tenuous as it might be, uh, does not really answer a number of other questions that need to be asked here, as we try to ascertain exactly what's going on and the impact it's going to have. Joining us to talk about this is Timothy Sale. Timothy, of course, is an assistant professor of history and the director of international relations program at the University of Toronto with an expertise and Canadian foreign and defense policy, U.S. foreign policy, the Iraq war, and international relations uh, with NATO. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you back with us today.
3: Thanks, Bill. Great to be here.
0: Let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the implications of this. And, and every time we get a quote-unquote update on this, uh, it raises more questions as opposed to giving us any answers.
3: That's right, Bill. It's changing so quickly. The admission from Iran that they are responsible for shooting down this airplane is extremely significant. In the past, we've seen airlines shot down. Airliner shot down, and states um, denying that they were responsible. So this admission is a big deal. But you're right, it raises questions as to how this happened in Iran, what's Iran's responsibility, and were there other organizations that should have been um, closing down that airspace or giving flights warnings after the attack on Iraq?
0: And, and I'm glad you brought that up, because it was one of the first questions that, that came to my mind as we heard about, uh, well, the downing of the aircraft, which, uh, of course, we found out later on, of course, was through a missile attack. Uh, What was that plane flying for in the first place? I mean, if the Iranians, as we were told now, uh, were anticipating a retaliatory uh, action from the United States, why didn't they close down the airspace?
3: It's a great question. And we we know from that Iranian uh, guard commander, the commanding officer of the Iranian Aerospace Command, he actually said in his press conference that there had been a request to close the airspace, and he did not know why that request had not been acceded to. So either a major disconnect and a problem within Iran or a purposeful decision to leave airspace open, perhaps as a, a civilian shield against an American response that night.
0: But, I mean, if there were missiles flying, and we, again, we must remember that the Iranians already fired on two U.S. military, or military bases that housed U.S. personnel. Uh, but they have the same sort of technology, maybe not as extreme as the United States says, But I mean, they targeted empty buildings. I mean, uh, there's a suggestion now that they didn't want to harm anybody, notwithstanding the uh, the, the cry for blood that many of the Iranians were uh, uh, that are marching in the streets right now are calling for.
3: That's right, absolutely. I mean, this tit-for-tat escalation between the U.S. and Iran, um, I think, could have ended that night if Iran had managed to control its airspace and avoid this tragedy. This is a totally unnecessary tragedy. It should have been prevented um, by Iranian know-how. They had the choice
0: to close their airspace, and they did not take it. And there is a precedent for this too, isn't there, Tim? I mean, we look at the Syrian situation from a couple of years ago uh, where the U.S. retaliatory action was to fire missiles uh, at what turned out to be an empty uh, Air Force base. Uh, but that seemed to be okay. That was the, the tit for that tat, and, and they moved on from there. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like you show me yours, I'll show you mine. But uh, I don't know that anybody was expecting this as a result of, of, of that action that had happened about a week or so ago.
3: That's right. I mean, the Iranians had a number of choices, a number of ways they could have responded to the assassination of their uh, General Qasem Soleimani. They chose an option, I think, which gave the Americans an off-ramp, a chance to say, as the president did that night, all is well. The problem, though, when two states are escalating in violence against each other, innocent people can be caught in the middle. And we've seen this time and time again. Um, Although this shooting down of the airliner was done by the Iranians, and I'm not letting them off the hook, it certainly happened in a spiral of tensions uh, that both the Americans and Iranians seem to be oblivious
0: to their effects on on basically innocent civilians in the rest of the world. Tim, there's a couple of different angles to talk about here. Obviously, there's there's some that are crying for vengeance. Uh, Others are crying for justice, and they are two separate things, and we can talk about that, uh, the difference between those two things uh but some world leaders are being criticized for their approach and especially here in Canada of course uh, I saw over the weekend a number of critics uh, saying that well the the prime minister should have been more outraged he should have been more vociferous about this uh but at the same time diplomacy and and, and has to come into play here how do you balance those
3: right it's a really difficult balance we've seen the government of Canada I think, really focusing on the human element and reaching out to those Canadians affected by the tragedy. And I think they're doing a very good job there. But I do have a sense that there is a strong push behind the scenes. The Canadians working with partners, especially the Ukrainians and some other European partners to put pressure on Iran. I expect that the Canadians were working very closely and in close contact with the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians had the first investigators on the ground. And it seems like that Ukrainian investigation, by, able, by being able to identify that this airliner was brought down by a missile, put enormous, enormous pressure on Iran to admit fault here. So there is a diplomatic uh, background. Calling for vengeance, um, asking for parts of the Iranian government, like the Revolutionary Guard, to be put on the terrorist uh, sanctions list, etc., don't immediately further the goal of Canada and Canadians, which is to get some compensation, um, some accountability for those
0: killed. And, and that's not to suggest uh, that, you know, that we simply back yeah. off and be, and be, you know, uh, standoffish about this and just kind of let things happen. Uh, but th- th- as you mentioned, there's an awful lot that needs to be done here, uh, questions that need to be answered, an investigation has to take place. Uh, and if you if you're just going to use you know uh, angry bombast and and you know fist pumping, uh, you're not going to get too far. I mean, if you look at what's happened so far, I mean, we already have Canadians on the ground in the, that area right now and involved in that investigation. And I'm not so sure that happens if you if you take a confrontational approach.
3: No, I think that's exactly right. Um, it did take a while. That was frustrating for Canadians, but now we do have um, a staff there, a team there. It's going to grow. I expect that that. Team will be pressing with other partners for a full investigation into what happened in Iran. I expect that Iran will refuse that because the questions that are asked here are really crucial questions. They have to do with whether Iran can defend its own airspace and whether the Iranian leadership took decisions that killed uh, Canadians, of course, but Iranians too. So, my expectation is that that investigation won't get too far, but the Iranians might try to move quickly to compensate. Victims, in an attempt to avoid a full investigation.
0: Let's let's talk about what cards Canada can play here. Uh, what actions they can take? We've we've talked about this. I I, I think the prime minister's reaction uh, to to focus right now on the families and, and friends and, and loved ones of the, of the victims in this thing it probably is the appropriate thing to do at this time.
3: I think that's right. And again, that's the public face of what the government is doing, but of course the government, I think, is working behind the scenes with Iran, but also no doubt scrambling to figure out uh, the future of Canadian forces in the region. Remember, we have about 800 troops um, in the region, all affected by this crisis, so they'll be watching very closely as to see what will happen uh, with those forces here. As far as cards that we have to play, they are somewhat limited in this case it's going it's that international public pressure that has the strongest effect on the Iranian
0: leadership. Tim what role does NATO play in a situation like this especially with uh, their credo of course you know an attack on one is an attack on all. Uh, I know that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has had discussions with Pres- Macron in France uh, about this and uh, not that they're suggesting there's going to be any kind of a military action but is would there be a, a united show here in a united front from NATO to, to, to approach Iran about this?
3: I think it will happen with NATO members working together to confront Iran diplomatically or present um, just why this is such a big deal that Iran resolve it. But I don't expect the NATO organization uh, as a military alliance um, to respond beyond putting out a statement. But you're right, there is a major NATO connection. A lot of those Canadian forces training Iraqi security forces are there as part of a NATO mission. The president has suggested that NATO should take on a role in containing Iran, and I think that that is uh, really anathema. It's something that Canadians and European allies are not interested in. I think the Canadian government's preference here is diplomacy rather than a show of force.
0: What about a story that I saw in some of the reporting from the states over the weekend that, that some of the reticence that, that that some of those European nations may be showing uh, and, and, and you know not being as 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 aggressive in the, in their condemnation of this uh, is the fact that the, there are still some leaders over there that are trying to hold together some of the shreds of the new the Iran nuclear deal even though the United States has walked away from that. And Iran says they're not going to abide by it anymore. But to a certain extent, there seems to be a hope, however small that might be, that, that maybe, maybe they can cobble something together.
3: I think that's a great point. It's really important uh, for the Europeans to try and at least keep that agreement um, uh, on ice rather than see it killed off entirely in the hope that it can um, continue and the Iranians and the Americans can be brought back to the table. So, yes, the European interest... In maintaining connections with Iran on the nuclear file, I think helps Canada and helps Canada connect with the Europeans and creating those back channels um, to Iran. And so while the Iranians or the Europeans have been in the background somewhat of the pressure on Iran, I think it's worth noting that uh, while the president of the United States speaks out against Iran. uh, I'm I'm yet to see him offer condolences to the Canadians uh, and others killed um, on that night. So some peculiar pressure coming from the president here.
0: Well, yeah, the silence is deafening. And I think a lot of people were looking for that. And as you say, to this point anyway, has not been forthcoming. How difficult is it to negotiate and have these discussions? Uh, For instance, in this case with the Iranian government, a government that Canada does not have diplomatic relations with.
3: It is difficult. It's a challenge. Uh, We'll see Canada working through um, partners. For instance, the Canadian embassy in Ankara in Turkey seemed to be connecting with the Iranian diplomats there, so things happen off-site. Had there been a Canadian embassy in Tehran, of course you would have had Canadians on the ground, but you also would have had Iranian staff working at that Canadian embassy who could have, for instance, traveled near the crash site, who could have got out into the country to see what happened earlier. Um, it does seem that the Iranians are willing to speak with Canada. The phone call between the Canadian Prime Minister and the Iranian leader was a really uh, remarkable moment. But we have started from uh, a standing a standing start rather than than a running start here.
0: What's this doing internally in Iran? We've seen the, the protests in the street. Well, they were there before this all happened, of course, but uh, they seem to accelerate uh, after the, the, the killing of, of the top Iranian official. Uh, more protests, and they're demanding action from their government. Uh, it seems as if an awful lot of the people that are in the streets now, and they were attacked again, we're told, by forces that with real live ammunition and tear gas today over the uh, the last couple of hours. That uh, the, that their disgust is, is not so much with the Americans now, although that that's latent, that's still there, but their own government seems to be the focus of their protest.
3: You're exactly right. These people in Iran on the streets, the first crowds we saw in the street were, um, you know, had rallied toward the Iranian flag, were deeply upset and angered by the American action. Now people are protesting in Iran frustrated with the action of their own government. And of course, it was the Iranian government that killed an enormous number of of Iranians on this flight as well. So I think that that in itself just points to what a disaster this shootdown was for Iran. There can be no sense that this was calculated at all. This is very bad news for the Iranian leadership, and they've lost that public support they had in the immediate aftermath of the killing of Soleimani.
0: Internally, once again, and this is not the first time we've had this discussion, I guess it goes all the way back to 1979, but even uh, some of the aspects that were going on in the 90s, uh, the the dual leadership in in Iran, there is a president, as as we've talked about, but the the supreme leader, of course, Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, who is much more militant uh, than the the president and and doesn't seem to have much in the way of uh, any inclination towards diplomacy uh, in situations like this, how does that impact the dynamic within the country because they're getting two different messages from two leaders that's
3: right it's easy to i think from canada look to iran and see just one um solid uh country but it is riven with divisions there are different groups within iran that compete with each other and who have very different ideas as to what iran can do and should do on the world stage and i have a sense that that might have contributed uh, to the decision to leave airspace open on this night. That decision seems to have come from leadership above the Aerospace Defense Command and could be caught up with this jockeying between different parts of the Iranian government.
0: Uh, You you mentioned that compensation may be offered here as a way to try to to diffuse uh, some of the tensions that are going on here, at least between some of the other countries, including Canada. Uh, in France. Uh, The last time this happened, of course, uh, it took years and years. I think it was about eight or ten years before they came to that. Do you you see that accelerating?
3: You're exactly right. In the past, it has taken forever, eight, ten years, for states, um, after they do admit a shoot-down, to arrive at some sort of compensation. My guess, I wonder if it might move a little bit more quickly this time, the Iranians seeing that compensation would take the pressure off them to reveal more about what was happening inside Iran. For the family's sake, I hope that's the case, that the compensation can move forward. It just might come at the cost of knowing more about what happened that night.
0: That's actually one of the more chilling aspects of this that uh, that we need to consider. I mean, this is the third one in in recent memory that we're talking about. There was the U.S. uh, shooting down the Iranian thing. There was the Malaysian Airlines thing, which uh, Russian dissidents, we were told, and now this one. Uh, It's rather frightening to see a pattern here.
3: It is. It's it's very concerning, and this is why I think today people are starting to ask questions not only about Iran, which should be the focus, but what are airlines doing in these situations? What is the International Civil Aviation Organization doing? If this is going to be a part of air travel, we certainly need a better way of managing uh, crisis situations. If there are being if there are ballistic missiles being fired in uh, a region, then perhaps airlines and the ICAO might realize that they should be taking action to ground flights
0: themselves. Tim, always a pleasure. Great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks again. Take care. Timothy Stale, of course, who is the Assistant Professor of History and Director of International Relations in the Program at University of Toronto.